You know, as I talk to believers in these days, and especially considering world events, global events, war in Israel, and imminent threats that are mounting around the world, just the crumble of ethics and any understanding of godly morality around the globe, and particularly in the West, even in our own hometowns, it's hard to not come to the conclusion that the world is crumbling quickly. And I think that this is true from a biblical standpoint. The word does seem to indicate that there will be a greater culmination of evil and powers and demonic forces as time continues. In other words, the battle between good and evil that began at the beginning of the world, at the fall, that hit a special kind of fever pitch at the arrival of Christ, his birth, his life, his death, burial, and resurrection, continues to this day and will continue to increase and the hostilities will swell until Christ returns. In other words, the world will not lay down and pacify. The enemy no longer gives up and surrenders ground easily. And believers all over can sense it. In fact, this is why so many people, Christians today, are talking so much about the end times and are we right on the precipice of it and is Jesus coming tomorrow? These are good questions to ask because when we see the columns that uphold society begin to crack and shake, it leads us inevitably to think about the ultimate end. Satan rules every public institution of our day. This is virtually incontestable. He rules all the institutions, public institutions, but the church. And when I say first that he rules public institutions, I mean that, I mean that the dominant influence in the arts, in education, in media, in government, in the sciences, in the, in the academy, academics, in, in mathematics, in all of the spheres of intellect, Hollywood, all of the drivers of our world seem to be under far greater influence from the enemy and they are under the influence of Christ. All the public institutions that once used to at least confess Christ, and at the very least in the West made a pretense, oh, we're Christian. We honor the Ten Commandments. We want to do these things for the glory of God. Even those who in pretense or by word alone said these things are saying those no longer. Satan rules every public institution but the church. We are all that is left. We are the last line of defense. And the enemy furiously wants the church to. Like a greedy dictator, he will stop at nothing to have power and influence in the church. He seeks to divide and to conquer. And I think that this is especially true and evident in faithful churches who are not willing to yield to worldliness. You want to pick a fight with the enemy, that's exactly what you'll get. And so it seems like more now than ever, we can say that the church needs to unify against the enemy's attacks. 
The whole New Testament warns of the destruction of internal division in the church and encourages the intentional and careful seeking of unity together. We are to unite and bind together as one. We are not to let the enemy come in in any way. We're to be strong and resilient. And it's only when we unify together can we be. You know, the the graphic that has represented this sermon series, Unity, is a bunch of aspen trees. Did you know what the largest, heaviest, and probably oldest living tree is on the planet? It's a singular quaking aspen in the state of Utah. It's a single root system that has sprouted up 47,000 sprouts that from a distance, we just look at them and they go, those are 47,000 trees. But all of them are rooted in the exact same life-giving entity. It's the same tree. It's one tree with 47,000 sprouts. It's 106 acres in central Utah. It's enormous. And the way that trees like this survive for thousands of years is that we're all bound together in the roots. It's crazy to think of these tall, skinny trees that survive the winters that we have to endure here in Utah. It's because they're connected underground. Even the root systems that don't go that deep are connected to those next to them, and we hold each other up, as you see where the illustration is going. As a church, we are bound together. We have one life-giving source. We are all part of the true vine that is Christ. And so I think that that image is one that's helpful for us as we think of unifying. We need to do this now more than ever. We're in the book of Colossians. I've been preaching through chapter 3, verses 12 through 17, and we have spent the last several weeks walking through one verse per week. We're going to do the same this week, and we're going to wrap up this series on verse 17. This is the final sermon in this series, and this is also the final verse in our, um, in our paragraph we're covering. So if you have your Bibles, go to Colossians 3. I'm going to read through just all of 12 through 17, pray, and then go back through that final verse with you all together. Let's go ahead and read 12 through 17. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we want for even this moment to be a giving of thanks to you through Christ Jesus. And Lord, I'm convinced that even if we don't intellectually process through and think through that reality every time that we open your word... Every time we do whatever it is that we do, I pray that this morning that that would come about, that you would let this time in the Word be an expression of gratitude, 
that you would help us to do such in the name of Jesus and through his power. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Again, our verse is, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The sentence isn't hard. It's actually the kind of verse that you may have seen on posters or um, on uh, plaques on a wall or somebody might post this in some social media context. Maybe it's been brought up before in Bible study. It's a great and wonderful verse. But the first question that I want to ask and try to get to the bottom of what does it mean to do something or anything in the name of the Lord Jesus? It's kind of the first thing we need to see. What does it mean to do anything in the name of the Lord Jesus? In the New Testament, the earliest Christians, the Bible tells us, baptized in Jesus' name. That's even a commandment. They healed people in Jesus' name. They cast out demons in Jesus' name. They preached in Jesus' name. They even risked imprisonment and even death for Jesus' name. In fact, we are even saved by the power of Jesus' name. You might have come to your mind, Acts 4.12, and there is no, no salvation in anyone else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other name. Under heaven, the name of Jesus. There is power in the name of Jesus. So what does this mean? What does it mean to do something in the name of Jesus? I think that the answer has to do with the purpose and the motivation behind what you're doing. To do something in Jesus' name is to do something as an act of obedience to him as our king. It is to seek his glory as the goal of that thing. I want you to consider, for example, here, prayer. We pray, every time we pray here, we pray in Jesus' name. We do so because that was a command given by Jesus in the New Testament, to pray in Jesus' name. That is, we are to pray according to His will, with His glory in mind. That's how we're supposed to pray. But it is clearly more than just tacking on that line at the end of a prayer, isn't it? Father, give me millions of dollars that I've always wanted to have in Jesus' name. And then you hold out hope. You know. You know there's something more than that. It's not just a phrase that we tack on at the end. We can ask for things from God, even in Jesus' name with that language in a way that doesn't honor Christ. I just want to show you James chapter 4 real quick. James points to this exact problem. James 4, 1 through 3, he's going to talk about some issues, quarrels, struggles, strives, unity-breaking things in a church. This is what he says. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And here's his line. Listen to this. You do not have because you do not ask. Now, real quick, before I read the next part here, you may be thinking, oh, they're not praying. They're not asking God. 
They're not, they're not going to him in Jesus' name for anything. But he says it this next. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You ask, but you don't really ask. Because you're asking in a wrong way. You're, you're asking in order to make your name great, gain some good for yourself over and above others. You are not in that asking, seeking the glory of another, but yourself. And so you and I, we can use even our prayers to fulfill sinful desires. We are not to do things out of selfish motives. Instead, we must do things in order to please Jesus. We must live to make much of him. That's what it is to do something in Jesus' name. So how much of our life should be devoted to this cause? How much is it going to cost? And this is where Paul sets the bar super high. So if we're to live for the glory of Jesus, that's doing something in Jesus' name. How much of the things are we to do in Jesus' name? Look at the verse with me here. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything, everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is not the only time Paul makes this kind of high demand on the Christian life. He sets the bar super high. In 1 Corinthians 10, 31, he says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. All. There it is again. Colossians 3, 23, a little bit after this, he'll be talking about servants serving their masters. And he says, whatever you do, Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. All of your work should be as for Him. Philippians 1.21, Paul even says this crazy line. For me, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Paul makes it clear so many times, this is an all-in kind of life. The Christian life is not a halfway life. It is an inward or deed. In whatever you do, in everything, do all things for the glory of Christ. Not only what you say, but what you do. Now, if you're like me, you might be thinking, what you say and do, okay, that's great. But what about what you think? Because that's another part. It's not just what comes out of you. What about what's in you? Well, I think the reason he doesn't include it here is because he already did at the beginning of this chapter. He already told us what we should be thinking about. That's already made clear in the first couple of paragraphs. I want to show you Colossians 3, just 1 and 2. Another very memorable verse. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So right out of the gate, he tells us to set our minds, our thoughts on Christ. Later in this chapter, he's getting to this, whatever you do, word or deed, so you know, all, of, all of your actions, all of your words, and all of your thoughts should be doing what? Pointed towards and glorifying Christ. That's what all of those should be doing. So here's the demand. Living for Christ should dominate every minute of the believer's life. This mindset should be operating at all times, in every sphere. It should be pervasive, a life saturated in glory for Christ. But there's a problem here, of course. We, as Christians, 
We don't do this. We don't do this with every moment of our lives, with every part of our lives. In fact, that's what's leading Paul here to need to provide encouragement for us to do this because it's not a default. We've used that language a lot in this series. We're being told throughout all of this paragraph especially things we must pursue as believers that aren't just going to happen on their own. Put on, then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. He goes on in a long list of things we're supposed to be doing for each other that are going to take effort. And the same is true with this. That's the problem. We haven't arrived. Now, you might even read a verse like this and get discouraged. Whatever you, wait, whatever you do? Everything in the name of the Lord Jesus? might feel a bit discouraging. You might say, Man, I'm just so far from this. I'm reminded by a, a long hike that my wife and I took on a trip that we, we took to Glacier National Park. We, were, uh, we did uh, 25 some odd miles at some point, and we were coming down the high point of a mountain over a pass, and we were about uh, six and a half something miles from the top of that peak down to uh, the road, the, the trailhead. And it was one of those really, really steep kind of hikes. The type of hike that hours of us going downhill was just wearing on our feet and our knees and our packs and uh, just like all that kind of sense that even downhill was hard on that kind of hike. And I'll, I'll never forget, we got to about a mile from the end, okay? So six and a half miles, we got about a mile from the end. And we saw another couple coming up the same trail and they are just dripping sweat and huffing and backpack on and we're in the thick of the forest so you can't quite see ahead of you at that time. And I remember this couple just panting, panting, and they said, are we almost there? And I literally remember thinking at that moment, like, I didn't have the heart to tell them. And I wanted to go, yeah, you're almost there. And I had to be honest, I was like, not even close. You have so much farther to go, and it's just going to get steeper, and it's going to get harder, and you can't, you can't even see the top. If you look through the trees, you see that, that's like a quarter of the way to halfway. Sometimes when we hear verses like this, it gets that sense, right? <sighs> Man, I've been struggling to keep five minutes of my morning focused on Christ. How am I supposed to pull this off? It must be easy for Paul, we imagine. <laughs> Maybe he's got some special connection that I don't have. Maybe he doesn't have the distractions I have to deal with. He doesn't have a wife and kids he's got to deal with. He doesn't have the typical kind of job I've got to struggle through. He doesn't have to focus on the types of things that I have to focus on. How am I going to pull this off? What I want to offer for you in our remaining time this morning is seven points of encouragement. Seven points of encouragement towards this, because the aim, the goal is this, and I want to offer encouragement for you in this, because you haven't attained this yet, I haven't attained this yet. Paul had not attained that yet. And so what are we to do? First point of encouragement, this is the purpose of your life. That's an encouragement. This is the purpose of your life. It is why you were born. It is why you exist. This, to do everything 
for the glory of Christ. That's why you're here. It's your life mission. Uh, Some believers in history came up with wonderful language that many millions have adopted and said, yeah, that's a great summary. The chief end of man. What is it? Chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. For centuries, Christians have been, yeah, that's the summary. Here in the mission church, right outside in the lobby, as you walk in, you see our mission statement. We never want to forget the first things on there. We exist to glorify God, strengthen believers, and reach the lost. We want that to be right there all the time in front of us. This is why we're here. There's no higher purpose. Nothing deserving more attention. Nothing deserving more energy than that. And if you're wondering, like, okay, Rich, I get it. You get it. Why is that an encouragement? It's an encouragement because it's a wonderful thing to know your purpose. In fact, life without purpose is abject misery. Life without not only purpose, but the things that build towards that purpose and obstacles you have to overcome to attain and get to that purpose. It's only those things that can bring you joy. You know, I found a study not long ago that I was really fascinated by. There was a zoologist and an ethologist. He studied the kind of the morality of animals and uh, how they behaved and operated together and tried to associate how humans uh, interact with each other and how those things relate. His name was John Calhoun. And back in the early 1960s, he did a famous mouse experiment. He built what he called Mouse Utopia. It was a giant structure that was designed to provide everything that thousands of mice could possibly need and desire. And he'd done a whole bunch, he'd done dozens of these to finally learn what would be the most optimal possible environment for these mice. He created a controlled environment that provided ample resources, such as unlimited food, unlimited water, no threats of any kind, no weather or environmental concerns. It was all built indoor. And he hand-selected eight perfectly healthy mice in order to place them in this enclosure, give them everything they needed, even things to play on and enjoy just to be taken care of to see what would happen. And the goal that he set out in mind was to see if a perfect society, a society with utopian conditions could flourish. And he estimated by the enclosure that he could fit about 4,000 mice, a little less than that. 4,000 mice could sustain, had plenty of space and room and multiple levels and boxes for them to, to feed and breed in and all kinds of things like that. And initially, as he observed, as the months went on, these eight mice began to multiply, as mice do, and he noticed a thriving in their population, exactly as you might expect. Mice got together, they were having a good time in there, nothing was keeping them from growing, and so it began to multiply from eight until the end of the first year. And by the end of the first year, there were 620 mice in the enclosure. But that's when everything turned for the worse. That's when he noticed that it was the peak of the population that began to change. Because even though it could sustain 4,000 mice, as the population density increased, a range of social and behavioral issues emerged. The mice began to exhibit unusual behaviors, such as increased aggression, social withdrawal, abnormal mating patterns. They watched some mice start to eat other mice. Some refused to breed. 
He actually observed some mice separate themselves from the rest of the society. They climbed to the highest boxes. They would never interact with any others. And all they did all day long was preen, clean themselves. He called them the beautiful ones because they were in perfect condition. But they separated themselves from the rest of the little mouse society. What a fascinating study. And as time went on, after that first year, as it hit 620, months went down. By the time he got to the end of that second year, almost every mouse was dead. All the conditions needed to survive and thrive. This is mice. But they're creatures. And no matter how optimized the environment, and this, I think, is true for us as any creature, no matter how optimized the environment, creatures in this fallen world were made for something more than a self-absorbed life. We've come to see and realize this about people. We need to live for something more than our enjoyment, than our own pleasure. We must live for something greater. We must live for believers, as we would say, someone greater. We're not made to navel gaze, to stare at ourselves and only try to accomplish whatever would bring us immediate, in-the-moment joy and satisfaction. This is why we can observe this in people, too, in a little different way. If you give a person unlimited money, unlimited safety, Unlimited influence, unlimited protection from harm. Does their joy, happiness, satisfaction increase? No. We see time and time again that the places, the neighborhoods, the the cities that have the greatest wealth and influence and safety begin to utterly crumble from the inside out. If it weren't true, Hollywood would be the happiest place on earth. People in this world invest years of their lives trying to figure out something outside of themselves. Purpose. There are people who invest millions of dollars into finding, why am I here? You and I don't have that problem. If you're a believer, your purpose has been assigned to you by God. It has been given to you by God. It is a gift to know what we are made for. And that's why that's the first encouragement The first encouragement is, your purpose in life is to make much of Christ. We were made for something bigger than this life. Second encouragement, this mission is a lifelong pursuit. Since this is the highest purpose of your life, it's going to take the rest of your life to accomplish it. And even then, you'll never really arrive until you die. That's the way the Bible talks about this. Philippians 1.6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it out to completion at the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is, in the end, after his return, that's the point in which we finally will attain that goal, that purpose. For all of eternity in heaven, then and only then, will we finally be doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I had a spiritual mentor tell me once, becoming a disciple of Christ costs you nothing, but being a disciple costs you everything. You have the rest of your days to do this, whether it's one or thousands, and it's what you're to be doing forever. I said this last week. I said, sanctification is not training for the war. Sanctification is the war. This is so important to get this one in your minds. This is a lifelong pursuit. 
I do think that sometimes believers get tricked into thinking, I finally engage in the war. I finally am being used by God. I'm finally bringing glory to Christ after I've gone through years of overcoming all these things and finally climbing miles to the precipice. And once I've arrived, now I get to give him glory. The entire journey is what gives him glory. Your day in, day out, sin battles, holiness battles, confession, repentance, seeking holiness, crying out to the Lord in failure, and standing up and going again, that is the war. That's how we win. That's what we were made to do. It's not as though God is going, why are these people not bringing me glory? We are to give glory to him in the midst of all of these circumstances. You know, I said this before. I think this is an interesting thought that I've, I've had come to mind. I hope it serves you well also. Worshiping God in the midst of suffering, trial, and failure is something we can only do now. You'll never be able to do it in heaven. You cannot offer that worship to God in heaven. You can't do it. The kind of worship that comes out of a broken soul and a, and a moment of failure, the morning after failure, and after deep confession of sin, an acknowledgement of my fallenness or, or a struggle and strife that's too heavy for me to carry. And I cry out to God and I worship him in the midst of struggle. You can only do that now. So take advantage of that. This is a lifelong pursuit. Don't be discouraged if you've not yet arrived. Of course you haven't arrived. Nobody has arrived. This is what you're supposed to be doing until Jesus returns. So if you mess up again tomorrow, what do we say? Get up. Let's go. It's okay. The Lord's given you another day. Let's keep growing. So that's the second. This is a lifelong pursuit. Third encouragement. The Lord is with you in this. That's the third encouragement. You're not alone. He's with you. Jesus doesn't leave us with this high demand, tell you to figure out on your own, in your own power, and then walk off. You know the Great Commission? All authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me, Jesus says, right before he ascends into heaven. Go, therefore, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It's in the name again. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded, and surely I will be with you to the end of the age. We are not alone. He is with us in this. We are completely provided for by him in the midst of these days. He is with us as we seek to do this more fully. You need to prepare yourself because it's a terrifying thing to give the Lord every part of your life. If you let him into any part, every part of your life, he's going to want to change some things. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, all your ways, acknowledge him. And he will make straight your paths. You know, I had a Marine buddy once who told me uh, he thought boot camp was the easiest time of his life. And I was like, what are you talking about? He said, yeah, all I had to do is exactly what I was told. Well, that's a way to look at it. All you got to do, all you got to do every morning is ask the Lord what he wants. Every day, that's all you got to do. And in that sense, it's simple. He is with us. He does guide us. He gives us his word. He gives us his spirit. 
He indwells us. Even your greatest trials are being used by God to accomplish this. You are not now leveraging everything to His glory. And even your trials will be used to help you get to that. If you're a believer, this means that every trial you face is carefully crafted by God for this purpose. And your spiritual growth is not going to look like a straight line. So if you're thinking, I know this is going to take a long time. You got the mark here. Okay, here's where I started. And here's, here's perfection. Here's heaven. So it should be... No. No. To be sure, as you zoom out, you will inevitably and invariably see that there has been progress. This is the promise of progressive sanctification. Only dead things don't grow. But oftentimes we're so close to it, we don't see it. We're, we're hoping for this, and when it, we're not matching the growth line we had expected or hoped for, we get super discouraged. But the Lord is with you. He's kindly there next to you. He's encouraging you in the midst of your struggle when you're in the fall. He's right there alongside you. Fourth, fourth encouragement. Your success in this does not determine your standing with God, ultimately. If you're not a believer today, it is critical that you understand your works have gotten you into the mess you're in. They're not getting you out. Christ gets you out. All of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us deserve God's just judgment because of our sins. And if you're hoping just to stop doing some bad things, start doing some good things, that'll correct the issues. No, it doesn't work that way. It can't work that way. God's not going, this is the goal, let's see how close you get to it. And if you get more than halfway to this, that's that kind of determiner as to whether or not you get into heaven or not. Well, you tried really hard to get in there. It's not the way the gospel works. The gospel is this, Christ is the only one who's ever been able to accomplish Perfect glory for his Father in every word and deed and thought. Christ alone has accomplished that. And so because of that, he deserves the perfection of eternal life in all things. You and I deserve wrath and judgment from God. Punishment for the sins that we have done. But God demonstrated his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This means that Jesus goes to the cross and he bears the penalty for sins that were not his own. He bears the penalty for the sins of those who will believe in him. And if you put your faith in him, if you believe on him, you too will have eternal life. And just as he raised from the dead, he couldn't stay dead, did not stay in the grave, you too can have eternal life. Where this is finally, fully completed. That's what we want for you if you're not a believer. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Your works don't get you saved. And listen carefully to this. This goes for believers too. And your works don't keep you saved. Your works don't get you saved. Your works don't keep you saved. He preserves. He does that work, not you. If you're waking up every morning and putting your hope in, oh, I hope I don't blow it today. If that's your hope, oh, come on, you got this, Rich. You got this. You can do this one more day. If your hope is in self, 
If your hope is in your own works, then it's not where your hope ought to be. Your hope must be in Christ alone. And so if you measure yourself against the perfect standard of Christ, you're always going to see yourself as fallen short. Being a Christian is not something that switches on and off, depending on how good your day is going. If you are a Christian, every bit of you is a Christian. Every bit of you is saved. Every bit of you is redeemed. Every bit of you belongs to Christ. And consequently, that means that you don't belong to yourself ultimately. And everything in this world is going to be tugging on you and pulling on you in order to keep this from happening. To distract you, to take your attention off of everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And your success in doing this will not be dependent upon your own stubbornness. Christ preserves his people. Jesus promised he will get all of the sheep shepherded into heaven. Every one. Every sheep that has been given him by the Father The father gives him the flock, son, this is yours. The son doesn't show up with half of them. Well, I tried. Even those that run off, he goes and chases down and drags back into the flock and restores to the fold. Your success is dependent upon Christ alone. Fifth encouragement. Not only do we have Christ, not only do we have the power of the Holy Spirit, God being for us, but we're not alone on this earth. We've been given one another. So fifth encouragement, you're not alone. Not only does God promise to be with us, but he provides others to walk this journey with us. So you might be asking, this is good stuff. Okay, that's good. It's important to be encouraged to these things. What does this have to do with unity? Everything. Unity means alliance, solidarity. There's a collaboration implied, cooperation with others. There are no spiritual Rambos. I got this. No, you don't. No, you don't. You're made to be together in this. Unity works towards something with a shared purpose. This is the purpose. This is what we're aiming towards. When each believer has his heart and his mind set on doing this, imperfectly seeking to attain it, day in and day out, acknowledging his own sin, his own fallenness, confessing those things, going to the Lord, working towards these things in his power, not his own. It's then that we unite. It's then that we come together. We must have a shared purpose. We must win together. We must be on the field together. We must be working towards something together. And what's the something? If you and I were to come up with our own purpose, okay, this is what we're going to be about. We're going to go do this thing. That would inevitably fail. It would crumble. That's what we see all around the world, don't we? People uniting together over shared and common uh, in-the-moment values unrooted in Christ. And then get surprised when the whole thing comes falling down around them. Have you seen recently uh, some of the, the... People in the Western world are now uh, offering all of their incredibly intellectual insights into what's happening in Israel and Palestine right now, and all these uh, wonderfully brilliant college students who are the queers for Palestine. Are you kidding me? You think you're together. Get over there. You'll find out pretty quick. You're not. There needs to be a purpose granted beyond ourselves, our own failing ideology, something that stands the test of time. You and I have been given that. 
This is why the church, universal, is a thing. You and I unite with believers of all times, of all places, believers of different nationalities, ethnicities, languages. And how is it we can unite? Because we've been given the same mission, the same purpose, the same love for Christ, the same unity in Him. We're not alone in this. This is what binds us together. And if ever a church, local, universal, if ever a church is struggling with unity, you get back on the same mission and watch how unity begins to bind the people back together. Watch how the shared purpose draws us back together onto the field of battle. The enemy is out there, and we fight united against him. Sixth encouragement, no other pursuit, no other pursuit can offer such joy. None. We don't have to choose between doing this or pursuing our greatest joy. That's awesome news. In other words, I don't go, hey, okay, I know this is going to be hard. You're going to have to be really miserable. You need to set your heart and your mind to, you know what, fine, I'll be miserable. This is what I'm supposed to do. I'll just do that, and I'll just, I mean, I guess I don't have to be happy. I don't need joy. I, I can just do that. Nope. This is the path to greatest joy. That's the good news here. This is the path. In fact, there are things that are standing between you and your greatest joy. And most likely, one of those dominant things is that a voice in you, in the world, in the enemy somewhere is telling you that something else will give you greater joy than this. It's one of the reasons you need to be in unity and fellowship with others who can go, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's going to make you miserable. Come do this. This is the path to greatest joy. Because what is most glorifying to God is in the end the most enjoyable possible thing for us. This is why when people wonder, they're like, well, man, you Christians, you don't love other people if you're wanting them all to change. You don't understand. Listen, if somebody's pursuing something that's going to kill them, make them miserable, not just now but for eternity, it would be hateful, spiteful to not desire for that person to get on the path of greatest joy. Don't you get it? I just want you to be happy. That's what Christians are doing. I just want for you to have the greatest possible joy. Lastly, seventh encouragement. Coming back to our text. God offers cures for our discouragement. He offers cures all over the Bible. Along the way, on our path, and one of them, a really giant and obvious one, is right here in the text. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Giving thanks. A grateful attitude is an antidote to discouragement. Paul's mentioned thanks in the last three verses, and I've kind of jumped over those the last couple of weeks, and I've said in a quick line, if you remember, I'll get there, I'll get there. I'll point to this thanksgiving thing. I'll point to this thankfulness thing again because he keeps bringing it up. Verse 15, he says, and be thankful. In verse 16, he says, sing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And here in verse 17, give thanks to God the Father through Jesus. 
Why is this so important? Because when you take stock of what blessings you have, when you make that list of what you should be thankful for, when you do that, it draws to mind the ways that even though you're imperfect, even though you've not been able to attain this, even though you may be discouraged of how poorly you feel like you're doing some days in this, God has continued to bless you day in, day out, hour in and hour out. And for you to pause and go, okay, okay, Lord, thank you. Thank you for all of the good things. And count those in your mind. Lay those out before you. You'll be encouraged. He knows what he's doing. He's with me. He's for me. In spite of my failings, his love has not been separated from me. This week, we celebrate Thanksgiving. We'll be in homes all over the valley, and some of you will travel, and people will spend time together. And You know, that it's, it's one of those holidays that even the world can't get away from the name. Aha, it's built in, Thanksgiving. <laughs> Christmas, people try to get away around. Easter, I don't even know what that means, get away around the real meaning of it. But Thanksgiving, the name is a helpful reminder. You'll see thankfulness. Be thankful, be thankful. As believers, we have one to be thankful for. One to be thankful to. Thankfulness is simply doing an inventory of all that God has done for you, all that God has done in you. I hope in my prayer is that this week we can especially remember this and that it'll be encouragement towards us doing what Paul says to seek here. Let's pray. Father, there is no possible way that we as fallen sinful creatures could attain what Paul lays out as a command here. There's no possible way. And that's just in ourselves, let alone the distractions that come from the world and the attacks from the enemy. Father, we know that the enemy seeks to harm our hearts destroy our worship for you, crush our households, distort and pervert our marriages, separate and and divide our churches. Lord, I pray that we would unite together around this common mission that has been given to us, this calling. Lord, I pray that you would teach us how to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which we have been called. No, we have not attained it. We never will in this life. And I pray, Lord, that we would be encouraged to continue on in the fight. Help us to lift up and encourage one another. Help us to sing praises to one another, resisting the enemy's temptations. Help us to have fun together, fellowshipping together, eat together, pray together, uh, share communion together, sing together, celebrate together. All the things that are acts of war in a spiritual sense. Lord, give us unity, we ask, as a church. And I pray that collectively our church would would gain a reputation as those who seek to, who aspire to do everything in word and deed in the name of Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God our Father through him. We pray this by example, in Jesus' name, amen.